You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Hey, everyone. I'm Jackie Lewis, and I am the host of Love Period, a podcast produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation. This is our fourth season, and in this one, we're thinking about how to reframe and reclaim Christian as a religion of love, as the religion of Rabbi Jesus. What about if we took it back to Jesus and took it back to love? What if we take it back to scripture that elucidates this beautiful movement of love and justice? Join us this season for beautiful conversations with folks across the spectrum to talk about what's love got to do with scripture and what scripture got to do with love. Today, my guest is Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. She is one of my favorite rabbis. Uh, I enjoy engaging with her on all things social issues. Her pulpit is at the National Council of Jewish Women, where she is working on ways to stand up for women and their choices in the world. When I think about Midrash, when I think about teaching on justice, on humanity and rights that belong to all of us, Danya is one of the rabbis I call, one of the ones I consult with. So I think you're going to enjoy our conversation today. Thank you, Danya, for coming today. Thank you for having me. Honor and a delight to get to hang out with you again. I know. How about next time, though, in person? Yes, Something please. liquid, tea, coffee, whatever we think. Donut <laughs> beverages, else. something. Yes, adult beverages, right? <laughs> can, you just, can you just tell me how you are? There's a lot happening as we record this in the world of... Uh, women's rights and abortion craziness and gun madness and climate hazard. Holy cow. Yes. T- tell me how you're doing. I'm holding on. It has been, uh, you know, there's uh, there's so much work. And, you know, National Council of Jewish Women focuses on changing systems for women, children, and families. And it's been... Um, it's been a long haul in terms of uh, abortion justice, and we've been doing a lot of work on on the care economy, right? On, on basic things like making sure that people have family leave and and that people are paid justly and equal pay and all of that, you know, sick leave, and then as you said, you know, gun violence. Right, making sure you know the right to to have the children you want and the child you know to not have the children you don't want also means that when you have kids that they are going to be safe in all of the ways you can send them to school and that they will be safe that when they are in the car if they are stopped by police that they will be safe so there's a lot of work to do and I'm just trying to do my little my little tiny piece of of a puzzle. You're doing great work, uh, not a tiny piece, a big chunk. But let me just ask you, uh, Diane, let's just jump in. You know, I'm looking at your sign, Intersectional Feminism, right? Um, these these issues of reproductive justice, the, uh, children having enough food on the table, um, able to go to school and, I don't know, learn some truth, able to sit in a classroom without being worrying about being killed, that gun violence is the leading cause of death for America's children. You're smart as heaven. Can you give us a bit of an analysis of what is at the core, the root of these intersectional concerns? What, what do you think's 
what in the hell is going on? <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why is our country so determined not to take care of its own? That is exactly what I'm talking about. Why? Um, <laughs> you know, white supremacist, patriarchal capitalism. I mean, you know. Yeah. White supremacist, patriarchal capitalism. Right. right? Uh, we live in a country that has at its root systems of domination and oppression. And it is in the best interest of, of a very small number of people with significant power to maintain the status quo. And the cost of human lives does not move them. And, you know, it's that famous uh, quote, you know, the gunning down of children. And as some of my black colleagues have observed, you know, the wealthy white children from Connecticut even is not enough to move those in power to pass uh, appropriate gun control with Sandy Hook. Like if that was not enough to move our country, then what will? Uh, because, you know, I feel like I don't even need to, to spell out the rest of that sentence, I, I would hope. So then the question is, then what? And the answer is, then it's on everyone else. And there are more of us, there are, are more of us to come together and to say no, and to recognize that all these issues are intertwined. Abortion justice is a racial justice issue. Economic justice is a gender justice issue, right? Immigration justice is, um, is a trans justice issue. Like they're all intertwined. They are all one thing. And the more we can come together and, and treat them all as one, the easier it will be to, to move the needle. I was with uh, Mirabai Star a few weeks ago doing some work. Feels like a few weeks ago. It might have been a couple months ago, but it feels like a few weeks ago. And one of the things that she was talking about that I'm often uh, saying is, you know, to Kunalam, right? To heal the world, to Kunalam. Um, she kind of explained that to me in a way that I hadn't heard before about, I'm going to say, light in a vessel and the vessel exploding. And could you tell us about the healing of the world? stuff, story, beautifulness, the imagery is so beautiful. It's interesting because in the sort of contemporary language, we hear tikkun olam, which literally translates as fixing the world. And we think like, great, doing social justice. And that's, it's become that shorthand. In rabbinics, it actually means it's a concession to reality. Hmm. Like the rabbis would say, Listen, ideally, we would do it this way, but we know how people are. And so, like, because of how it's going to be, we'll, we'll just do it this way, because that way we know things will actually happen. And so it was their attempt to try to get things to work. And then Isaac Luria in the 16th century um, in Svat, in the land of Israel, he was a Kabbalist, he took earlier Kabbalistic thinking and, and basically had this idea that when the world was created, is this, <laughs> like, I need to go back. And then there's the theological problem. Like, how does the great infinite perfection create a, a world that is material and finite and imperfect, right. right? Is a great theological question. And, and for Luria, it was like the great divine holiness became so great. And so like, there's this sort of explosion of 
big goodness and a shattering of the vessels of perfection and these sparks of light kind of moved out into the world and these the, the wor created world is, is these shattered vessels and it's our job to find these holy sparks that are everywhere, in everything. They are in how we eat, how we drink, in every act, in every way of being, and to lift them up in what we do and how we do it, we can lift up these holy sparks and return them to the divine. And that this is the tikkun olam, is this is the repairing and in bringing things back to unity. There are a lot of theologies in Judaism, so this is not the only one. And there's something very powerful about this idea of, um, of even in, in the most broken places, in the, in the most shattered sort of shards of uh, our country, our world, the places where there's the most pain, we can still say we are going to lift up the holy spark here. We're going to find that goodness, that hope, that possibility, and we're going to send it up because um, we're, we refuse to sit in despair and we refuse to let evil win. And it's part of our calling, right? It's part of our... That's our, our job. Our... Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, for the Kabbalists, that's, this is what we do. Yeah. I love that. I love that. I love, I love holy sparks. <laughs> I was in my mind going shards of light, but a holy spark is really great. Danny, you know, uh, your work on reparations, um, on repentance and repair is your beautiful book. Making amends in an unapologetic world. Oof. Making amends in an unapologetic world. This this idea of tikkun olam, of healing the world, of lifting up the holy sparks, when the world is on fire and a hot mess, where do you see it happening? Where do you see signs of people going, yeah, I got this? There is amazing healing work happening in a lot of places. Um, you have to look for it, right? Because the work of asking power to take responsibility for the harm it has caused and to do transformation work so that it will not cause that harm anymore and to be accountable to those who it has harmed. I mean, this is big and this is paradigm changing. And that's part of the reason why it is so difficult to move our country, right? Because if we do this work for real, it will change systems and structures. It should necessarily. But there are places where it's happening, right? Whether it's on the institutional level. Um, one of my favorite examples is the University of Michigan Health Center transformed how it handles patient malpractice, right? Now somebody is hurt in the course of getting care and they go straight to them, to their bedside, they say, this happened, we take full responsibility, here is what we're going to do for amends, Does is this appropriate for you, you know, here's what we're gonna make sure this doesn't happen again, right? And then the next person who comes through their doors is safer because of it. And people get their needs met and, and you see it reflected in, you know, the malpractice lawsuit data or whatever, right? Like they feel they're getting taken care of. Um, and you see it in the land back movement, which is gaining momentum, right? As more people are saying, this land is not ours, we stole it. 
And there are local tribal nations for whom it is truly theirs and they are the true caretakers. And we will either do fundraising through a local nonprofit or we will work with the local government or whatever. We will find ways to get tracts of land back to its original owners. And that is profoundly taking responsibility for the harm caused, making amends, making sure that a different future is possible, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. 40 acres and a mule would have been, that didn't Would have been, right? Um, Would have been, could have been. Do you know Edgar Villanueva's work, Decolonizing Wealth? I know of it. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I do feel like there's a, there's some energy around reparations that I would say I didn't know was happening. Uh, lots of different corners. Um, there are some people working in Tulsa, for example, on you know how do we make amends for that horrible massacre, and those those elders who actually didn't win their case. Um, uh, Northwestern University, like in Evanston, there's some energy happening here in New York. Um, there's a law that's cooking, you know, uh, that will be passed or not passed later in the fall. And then the crazy, quote, Columbus Day slash um, Indigenous Peoples Day uh, is coming right on the tail end of the high holy days that are your, your people, therefore my people's holy days. Tanya, what are the rituals, what are the conversations, what are the processes for repairing making reparations, some real practical ideas that are in your book, but also just in your experience, uh, in the work you do. How do we think about making reparations? And this is a complex question I'm trying to get out here. Like, what are the texts that inform your thinking, you know? So in Unrepentance and Repair, which is coming out in paperback in mid-September, Really, my work is based on Maimonides, who is a 12th century philosopher, a scholar, Torah scholar. He was the physician to Sultan Saladin in Egypt, uh, you know, workaholic, whatever. He took earlier thinking from rabbinic Judaism and kind of rearranged it so that it would be easier for your everyday person who is not a Talmud scholar to kind of know what to do and when to do it and... Um, he, he was a very confident person who, you know, decided for himself in some places what the, you know, if the Talmud hadn't made it clear what the answer was, he, he decided, you know. Yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> God, God, give me the, the confidence of, uh, I, I mean, I'm, I am not Maimonides, right? But <laughs> he's a very confident man. One of the things that Maimonides did was... Uh, codify the laws of repentance. Uh, He took earlier rabbinic thinking and and arranged it in a new way. And as I read it, there are, according to Maimonides, five stages of the tshuva, of the repentance process, which for us, tshuva is not repent, bad monkey, feel feel sorry, you know, feel guilty, but rather tshuva, it means return. It's about coming back to where you were supposed to be all along before you caused harm. It's about coming back to yourself, to God, right? And the five steps, as I read them, are confession, own the harm that you caused fully, no hedging, no, but I'm really a nice guy, right? Start to change. On the individual level, is that therapy? Is that calling your sponsor? Is that ditching your 
friends that make you encourage you to make bad choices is that um, educating yourself on anti-racism or trans liberation, right? If you're an institution, are you changing your policies so that you can't bury complaints anymore? What what needs to change so that you don't do the thing anymore, right? Is step two. Then amends. Then apology, because we want to see you do the work. We want to see the change and the repair first before we hear any words. And then step five is you don't do the thing ever again. And when we're if we're talking about reparations, we and, and we know that if you don't do the work, you're gonna do the thing again and again, right? If you are acting out of trauma, you're gonna keep playing out your anger in new situations if you haven't started to change, right? If your uh, fear of abandonment is replicating itself in relationships, that will keep happening if you don't do the work, right? If you don't do the deep anti-racism journey, your races, your white supremacy is gonna keep. I mean. Speaking as a less melanated person inculcated in this culture, like there's always more work to do, but <laughs> if you don't do any of it, it's going to keep showing up. And so when we look at the United States, of course, it's, you know, the white supremacy has continued from enslavement to lynching, to Jim Crow, to redlining, to mass incarceration, to voter suppression, right? We keep doing the thing. And so when we talk about reparations, I see us going straight to amends, to step three, without owning fully the harm that has been caused and without the changes necessary to make sure it doesn't happen again. Why is that dangerous? I mean, I, I know, but I want you to say. Because if what we do is offer financial remuneration to the descendants of those who have been enslaved without changing our white supremacist systems and institutions, then we are going to continue to live in a white supremacist country and uh, racial injustice is going to continue to replicate itself in probably new and innovative and dangerous ways in, in ways probably we can't even think about from here. You know, thank you, technology. And if we're talking about wealth inequality, maybe there's a little, you know, there's maybe some movement, but it, it won't be enough to repair. It won't be repair. Clearly, I am not the person to be weighing in on what is correct reparations, right? And as somebody who has spent a lot of time thinking about repair, I am worried when I see proposals that are just about on the one hand, in a country where we can't even talk about slavery in some states, the fact that we're talking about reparations in others is important, and I don't want to short-circuit that, right? And in the other, I, I want to make sure that any conversation about reparations is rigorous in its conversations about unseating white supremacy from our systems and institutions. That's right. That's right. And in the conversations I'm in, Danya, about reparations, there's also, I think that you're saying this too, there's a, in that learning, in that step two of changing, there's something about knowing what feels like repair to the other person. Like, what does that, what, what is repair for them? Not repair in our own language. Like, what's their love language? What's their repair language, right? What is the repair language that makes reparations possible? Because we know what it is, right? Correct. Because if, if, if I am a harm doer, 
And whether we're talking about the individual case, whether I'm the CEO and I'm dealing with someone in my organization who has been, I don't know, sexually harassed by a donor, whatever this, you know, whatever the thing is where the institution caused harm. Um, I'm the head of the Catholic Church. I, I you know, the head of the Boy Scouts, um, <laughs> the, the head of many denominations of many uh, organizations, and you know, including in Judaism, right? And I'm trying to figure out how to repair harm, whether it's on the national level. Uh, if I am a harm doer and I come to the harmed party and I say, here are your amends, without asking the harmed party, what do you need? I am replicating the original harm because I'm treating them like an object. I've decided for them what they need. I'm not seeing them as a subject. And half the time, at least, if not more, if you ask the, the victims or victim survivor or survivor what they need, the answer is probably different than whatever the harm doer is going to assume. And that is often an important learning moment for the harm doer, right? If the survivor says, actually, I don't need you to pay my medical bill. I've got great health insurance. Actually, what I need is uh, for you to blah, blah, blah. And the, har the harm doer is going, uh, oh, oh. Oh, right. oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> you know, even, and we have learned something. It's got to be victim centric. And so we have to meet the needs of the victim, which means we need to ask them what those needs are. Which requires some vulnerability and some intimacy, which is why I think people want to skip that part, because then you have to actually look at somebody and be like, yeah, I kind of there's wounds that I caused in you. There's harm I've done to you. Now, Talk to me about that. Yeah. And there's a loss of control. Like, I don't get to either control the narrative or control what you're going to need from me and what you might need from me is, might be inconvenient to me. Is there life after doom? Explore the complexity of hope and grief at our upcoming event, Courage and Resilience, an online gathering with Brian McLaren. Unpack themes from Brian McLaren's new book, Life After Doom. Discover how to find courage, even when everything may feel hopeless. Join us live on May 17th at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All those who register will have access to the recorded replay for one year. Register at cac.org courage. Explore art as a spiritual practice in the next issue of Wanting, the biannual journal from the Center for Action and Contemplation. Wanting, Art and Spirituality features images and reflections from leading actors and musicians, including Scott Avett, Josh Radner, Lourdes Bernard, and more. Get your copy today at cac.org slash wanningart. That's cac.org slash o-n-e-i-n-g-a-r-t. I'm going to say this, and I want you to push me all the way back. <laughs> like, if I get this wrong, just give, like, push, give me like a nice, gentle pushback, okay? Bring it. Um, I'm thinking about some conversations I have where, where it's, you know, kind of even Germany, like type of thing, right? Even Germany has done a reparations campaign about the, about the shoal, about the Holocaust, about the harm done to Jewish folk. How do you feel about that? 
Germany thing? <laughs> where, where does that sit? Is that Germany thing a good model or where, where is that for you? Germany is a messy model, honestly. When I started writing on repentance, I was assuming that Germany was going to be like the model case from which we can all learn. Um, you know, it's one of my case studies to help help us figure out what to do in the U.S. And it was very messy because the money to Jews came right after World War II, before the country had been willing to admit what they had done. It was basically, here's some money, let us back into polite society. The government was at that point still completely riddled with Nazis. And then there was a gen- it took them a generation to even start to talk about what had happened, but then it was still students saying, you guys, instead of coming home and asking grandpa where he was during the war. Right. Right. And, you know, and then it wasn't until the 80s, 90s that that people started to really have this sort of grassroots activism and really sort of saying, OK, in this town, this is here's the memorial to, you know, where we had a you know mass shooting of and here's where this and the mayor actually did this. And right. And, and to be able to really name more concretely do the, the confession step, really. And then, you know, and it was like 85 before a, a head of state spoke in a deep way about what had happened in, in a way that felt like it was having taking any responsibility. So, you know, now in many ways, Germany is a country that is deeply different um, and it's, you know, attitude towards immigration and its education around the Holocaust and uh, all of that is is profound Obviously, fascism is on the rise there as everywhere worldwide. So never again. But they have done a lot of really good work, but they kind of did it all out of order. So could they have done it in order? Would that have been possible in a country that was feeling victimized? You know, everybody's mean and bombed us. And, uh, you know, I don't know. And... The other thing about Germany that we have to remember when we think about models for owning harm that is different from the United States and it's different from South Africa is that when Germany was taking responsibility, they were dealing with a population that was all either dead or elsewhere. When the United States and South Africa think about harm, the implications require a radical restructuring of power in our society. Yes, that's really important. Mm-hmm. And that's, it is harder and more important. That's spot on. So I want to flip all the way into another place, which is uh, the, the way, one of the ways that you are my rabbi is around reproductive justice, just only one of the ways, right? And when I get a chance to be like, and then Danya said, you know, <laughs> I just do it. Because, listen, my Christian people like to take your book and pretend like <laughs> they know what it's saying or it's not relevant. There's two, there's two things there. And this uh, Jesus that's created in, in folks' own image, you know, this white supremacist Jesus who's blonde, blue-eyed, and wants us to be rich with a peacenik sign, this, that Jesus, they will put into his mouth thoughts about abortion that are not in his mouth or from his people. 
And, and you live right in the middle of this. So when we talk about text, uh, Diane, this year we're trying to really reflect on, we claim faith, we claim text. Could you just take us on a journey about why Judaism isn't, why abortion is just poorly in the mouth of the Christians who don't know? I want to say, call a rabbi. Reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. Do not sit in your pulpit trying to tell people how to feel about abortion if you're not going to call a rabbi in the name of Jesus, who was a Jew. Okay, so with that preface, give us some, take us to school a little bit on reproductive justice. Okay. Let us do this thing. Um, and I will I will say that um, as part of National Council of Jewish Women, we have a Rabbis for Repro network that has uh, over 2,500 rabbis and cantors and other Jewish clergy, maharot, and people with other Jewish clergy titles of every denomination, heads of Orthodox yeshivas, and I, I, right, the whole gamut, heads of every denomination, because there's not really a lot of questions in the tradition. There's really not wiggle room. Here's the thing. In the book of Exodus, we have a case where a pregnant woman is accidentally knocked over when two guys are brawling. And it says, quite clearly, um, if there is, if, if the, basically if there's a miscarriage, then the guy who knocked the pregnant woman over um, and we know now that people of various genders can get pregnant and need access to abortion care and miscarriage care and prenatal care and all of those things, but the language is one. So if she has a miscarriage, basically only, then he needs to pay the husband however much money the husband specifies. And if other harm happens, then it is... Ein tachet ein, shein tachet shein, right? Eye for eye, wound for wound, bruise, or tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, if it's just a miscarriage, you pay money. And if she dies, then it's treated as manslaughter. So if it is a, a causing a miscarriage is not manslaughter, right? The fetus does not have the same status as a person. The fetus does not have the full status of rights of personhood. And that's in this, just, you know, a couple of verses, little bitty Exodus text. The Talmud reads it <laughs> very clearly as that. The Talmud also says that for the first 40 days, a fetus is mayaba alma, mere water, and 40 days from conception. So for our counting from last menstrual period, that's seven to eight weeks pregnancy, 66% um, of abortions happen within that time. And then from 40 days until birth, the fetus is considered part of the pregnant person's body. It's as though it is the mother's thigh is the language used. Um, I love that. The mother's thigh. Right? It's just, it's a body part. Yeah. Part, part of the body. Yeah. And then we have other texts that the Mishnah, which is a 2,000 or more, depending on your theology, year old text says really explicitly if there if uh, a woman is in labor and the greater part of the baby fetus has not emerged then you have to uh, do whatever you need to do and it's very graphic it's basically abort the the baby 
fetus to save the life of the pregnant person because her life takes precedence, right? Until that baby's head, which is how later commentators read it, until the head has emerged into the world, it is not considered to have the full rights of personhood, right? Because that Genesis 2... Jews are terrible at chapter and verse because that's like not that's not our thing. But God breathed life into life the nostrils into the, of Adam, right? Right, right? That first breath is where life begins for us. Um, it's not to say that a fetus doesn't matter, right? It's a potential life, and it's important, and it's holy, and right. It's not nothing. Right? This is not to say, and and as someone who has three children, who has had a miscarriage, right? It's it's, it's not to diminish. For, for those of you listening, but but abortion is permitted in Judaism. And in order to save or preserve the life or health of a pregnant person, it is required. Required. Because the health and life and safety of the pregnant person takes precedence, and that includes mental health. Yeah. And the number of cases that, uh, you know, our country bans that Judaism would say, actually, you're required to have an abortion, are many right now. 13-year-old baby girl forced to give birth because somebody, someplace, has decided that abortion is the issue with which to whip up the nation. And those same people, not to quote a trope, but I, I don't find that that same energy about life of fetus is in the space of life of child sitting in classroom when the gunman comes. Exactly. Or life of child who is at school hungry because the parents are broke. Or life of child who is uh, sexually molested and kept in the family. Like, it's just insanity to me. Sorry, listeners. That we... So this, what Rabbi just did, what Rabbi, I'm going to call the Rabbi just did, is scriptural reflection on why abortion, why reproductive freedom is a Jewish value. And I'm really wanting to say to listeners, the text that precedes our text, that is the text of Rabbi Jesus, Yeshua, is this text that Rabbi Danya is talking about. So what's up with us? Show me where in the Christian scripture there's something about how abortion should just break our country. Just talk to me about that, y'all. Call me later because I'm talking to Danya now. <laughs> but give me a call if you have an answer to that question. <laughs> um, because people will ask. Jews do not derive Jewish law from poetic metaphor. So that line from Psalms, that line from Jeremiah, like we understand that it's a metaphor Poetry. being used you to make a different point, right? Exodus is clearly a legal text. It is telling you what to do in a specific situation, and it's making its terms clear. And Psalm 139 is a poetry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's it's just, a, yeah, Jeremiah is just saying you were destined for this job, guy. Right, right. So... And Psalm 139 is saying we are we are wonderfully created uh, in the image of the holy. Right. And that's so nice. Yeah. How lovely. Um, I, it's very lovely. Okay. So I am today, uh, as we speak, you know, mourning the recent loss of my father. Yeah. Thank you, sweetie. Oh, my friends have been so 
all y'all have been so loving and amazing to me, kind colleagues in the world. Uh, he was literally on his deathbed wrestling with what did he do to get ALS? And I was wrestling with him like nothing. So maybe just a couple minutes on theodicy as we kind of mourn the world, uh, uh, the, the burning of Hawaii and the melting ice caps and the hunger and the poverty and the hunting of black people with guns, the rising anti-Semitism. I mean, ooh, we could make a list of all of the, it's, it's a hot, hot mess of a hot mess time. And I just wonder, I mean, Harold Kushner gives me such fodder for thought, Rabbi Kushner, when bad things happen to good people. But Rabbi Danya might have something to say about theodicy. Uh, as we think about rapping, like, where's your faith in the texts on why there's just sometimes some unleashed junk in the universe that knocks us off our feet? I think two things. And, I, you know, I, I think they are compatible, personally. I think, number one, most of the suffering that we experience in the world is the result of human beings misusing their free will horrifically. The reason the planet is burning is our fault, right? The reason for racism and anti-Semitism and so many of the horrific things happening now are, are the fault of human beings. Basic, I mean, just straight up, right? Yeah, right. God didn't create gas chambers, right? No. God did not uh, decide to let innocent black people get gunned down in the street, right? That, that was people's choices. That's the free will thing. And we have to take responsibility for it. And we have to do the repair work. And we have to do the amends work. That's on us. That's right. And we have to also remember that, you know, my, my mother died of breast cancer. And it's like, we, we poison the air and the water. I don't think that there's a deity up. Uh, my, my conception of God is not a man in the sky with a pair of dice being like, you know, I, I think Jamie over over down here should be the one, right? It's just the toxicity is everywhere and it will catch innocent people in its net. I think that. And I also think that, one, you know, if we want to go back to the text, you know, at the end of Job, Job spends however many chapters screaming, why? Why am I suffering? Why has everything gone horribly for me? He's got, you know, his friends show up and mansplain. <laughs> and, you exactly. know, use, they're yeah. useless. Right. Uh, and then God shows up into the whirlwind and said, did you make giraffes? No. Okay. Part of being a human being is that suffering is part of our lot. And there may, maybe, you know, when I die, I'll get the answer key and it'll be like, oh, there's, it's, there's all comes for, you know, logical reasons and there's, but I, I kind of doubt it, right? I, I, I sort of just think that part of being a human being is that we get the, the magic and the opportunities to love one another. And, and part of being a human being is that there's suffering and heartbreak as part of the project too. And, you know, we have to, do the best we can with the free will to try to prevent as much suffering as possible. And that is literally our job down here. 
right? As Rabbi Akiva and your favorite rabbi said, like loving your neighbor as yourself is one of the big ones in the Torah, right? That that's Leviticus 1918. <laughs> that's, that's the work, right? We have to show up and take care of each other down here. That's our job. And that doesn't mean that we're magically protected from ever feeling hard feelings or suffering or experiencing pain. It just, that's just part of being a person too. We've somehow, many of us, some of us, lots of us, have created uh, a kind of agreement with God in our minds that if we're good enough, we will be able to live in a bubble of prophylactic, be protected from all the harm, from all the things. I'm just wanting to say as plain as I can to the people listening, um, it doesn't seem to be true, <laughs> right? It just doesn't seem to be true. That our, that our goodness, our kindness, our faithfulness um, protect us from the possibility that we will be hurt or wounded or die or have a crazy climate. That in our freedom, let's say, in our image of godness, in our imago Dei, in our whatever, personhood, uh, in the, the ways that we are created like God is to be able to create with God a healing world, I'll say, right? A healing world. And maybe there's a presence that comforts us. That's what I think. God, like, Jackie, I see you. I feel you. I feel you. It's tough today. I'm with you. Gotcha. Right? And for me, that's that's become enough, you know? That's become enough for me. It's got to be. Like, God isn't Santa Claus, right? Like, we have to be willing to grow in our theological conceptions and to be able to to move beyond the sort of vending machine, right? If I pray correctly, then God's going to give me a sports car or whatever, right? Like, and, and make sure that I never experience any pain or suffering. That's not, that is, this is not it, but there is, you are interconnected with all of everything and you are connected with the great big bigness of the divine and the universe and can tap into that and it can help give you the bravery and the strength and the you know ability to keep moving forward and the ability to to show up for yourself and for the people who need you and to live out your divine imageness which is all we got which is all we got and that's a lot that's enough it can be enough. I preached a sermon a couple of weeks ago, Danya, that um, we've recast with some images and stuff that's coming out in a... Corey, I'm saying this out loud so you'll remember to help me to do this, but this beautiful program we've uh, put together called um, Labor is a Movement, uh, Let Freedom Dance. But I, I was laughing so hard at my, at my wrestling with the text. Uh, I had this image of like praying for yellow shoes. Or God telling you to buy those yellow shoes. I am going to buy these shoes because I prayed about these yellow shoes and God said it was okay <laughs> for me to buy these yellow shoes. Get the shoes. And that's so comical that we can laugh at it. But there's a there's a kind of way in which that vending machine, genie, rabbit's foot God is just there to give you the stuff you've been asking for. And if you, we don't let our theologies, uh, let's say, progress or go up or become mature, then we, we almost end up with a God that we are, we are forced to break up with because he, and that God to me is a he, 
the God I pray to is a she, but that God is a he. He's withholding. He's nefarious. He's you got to somehow you don't know what's going to happen with him. Is he in a good mood today to give you the yellow shoes? That is just crazy town to me. Sorry, y'all, but that just doesn't work, right? If we if we are stuck there, we're kind of stuck. Yeah, because you you never get all of the. First of all, you never get everything you want. And so then what do you do when you're shaking the vending machine and saying, I punched in C4, you know, where's my candy bar? And number two, what you want and what you need are not the same thing. And that still small voice comes, when you listen to that still small voice, it comes in with inconvenient directions (laughs) often. That is true. You know, for me, the still small voice of our like deepest, deepest, deepest intuition is like the radio station to God. And, um, you know, (laughs) the the number of times that I have whined, do I have to, you know, in conversation is like, you know, that is not that is not how I want to spend my day. And if we're talking about repentance and repair, that includes fully owning the harm that I caused and do, you know, and doing all of this really inconvenient and painful work to change and own my stuff and all of it. Right. And, or, you know, whatever, leaving my cool friends to go move to a city. I don't want to live in because rabbinical school is the next thing, whatever it is. Right. But there's so many things we don't want but that we need and that are going to help us grow into the people we need to become. And if we focus all our intention on what we want and thinking that Santa Claus is gonna, you know, show up with the Corvette all the time, uh, of course we'll be disappointed. We're really gonna miss out, absolutely. Well, wonderful, amazing Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. I'm glad you're on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) Ray of light, Jackie Lewis, who I adore. I thank you so much for existing and shining the way you do. Let us find our way to some liquid uh, refreshments soon. (laughs) Bless you in these um, high holy days that are upon you. And um, I just want to send you love, so much love for being you. I appreciate you so much. So, so, so mutual. Thank you, my dear. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Love Period. As I reflect on my conversation with my friend Danya, I can't escape the feelings I had reading her book on repentance and repair, a book about making amends in a broken world. She calls us to account, y'all, always. So let's think together about our role in repairing the breach and healing what's broken in ourselves, in our communities, and all around the globe. Let's use our lives that way. This is Jackie Lewis, and you've been listening to Love Period. I'm so glad we shared the space together. And I'll talk with you soon. Take care.